Well, today we come to what I would consider to be the most clever piece of writing in the letter by the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia. Many have described this part of the letter as uh, like his, his sermon illustration. And everyone knows that if anything's going to be remembered from a sermon, it's probably going to be the sermon illustration. I can spend ages uh, wading through theological argument, trying to put it in a form that I think will be easy to understand. And what are people talking about in morning tea or at lunch after the service? They're talking about the time I lost my kids at the show or the time I left a red egg in my fridge for two years because I didn't know what was culturally appropriate to do with it or some workplace incident or they're talking about mushrooms or something like that that I might have used as an illustration. I, I recently used uh, mushrooms to illustrate something that I was talking about and can I tell you for two weeks straight after that message. I received photographs of mushrooms. I received links to articles about mushrooms. I heard about people's experiences with tasting mushrooms or, or looking for mushrooms. And all of it's good as long as the link has been established there with the illustration and the point that the illustration is trying to make. And that is the genius here in Paul's passage. He has, up until this point, presented many arguments as to why salvation is by grace alone through Christ alone and not by the observance of any laws. And in my mind, it's like he's gone a few rounds in the, the boxing ring with his opponents and now he's coming back with this final argument for the knockout punch. Now, Illustrations and anecdotes of any kind, of course, only make sense if you can relate to what has been spoken about. And so for many of you here, uh, a goofy looking dog and a tiny bird speak to you of something. Something maybe from your past that might have been read to you as a child those of you who are familiar with P.D. Eastman's classic children's story from the 1960s, Are You My Mother? That might have been read to you as a child or you perhaps read it to your children or grandchildren and so there's a link established there between our title for today and the images of a, of a goofy dog and a, a little bird. But if you've never seen that book or even heard of that book then the illustration is completely lost on you. And that is Paul's genius because not only is the illustration that he uses here familiar to those uh, to whom he's delivering this letter, it's one that all of his first listeners can also picture themselves in. And once they've worked out who they are in the story or at least who their mother is in the story, then he takes that story and he turns it on its head so that where they thought he was going with the story is not where they end up. And that combined, those three things combined are what makes not only for great storytelling but also help deliver that, that knockout punch in his final argument here to support salvation 
by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, the problem for us is that whilst many um, of his listeners or most of his listeners would have been familiar with all of these things, not all of us may be. The form of argument that he uses also was very typically Jewish and so it was relatively easy for them to follow and it's not so for us. Unless you're familiar with the Old Testament stories, this could be a very confusing illustration and it's made even more difficult by a difficult form of argument. So we're going to go step by step today and we're going to work our way firstly through the elements of the story. Who are the characters and what are they about? What was their story? Then we're going to look at the form of the argument that he uses before we finally look at where he takes us with this argument and what he's trying to do with it. So let's make sure first things first that all of us are familiar with the elements of this story. Now the people that he speaks of in this story can be found across a number of chapters in the book of Genesis, chapters 12 to 21. You'll find there the stories of Abraham, of Sarah, of Hagar, and of their sons, Ishmael and Isaac. In chapter 12, God calls Abram to leave his country, to leave his land and the people that he knows, and to go to the land that God would show him. And he promises him that he will become a great nation and that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And then we skip ahead a few chapters to chapter 15 and Abram must be wondering how all of this is going to come about because he doesn't even have an heir to inherit his own fortune or his own land, let alone somebody through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so God assures him that his seed or his heir will come uh, from his own body and then he takes him outside and asks him to count the stars if indeed it's possible for him to count them and he says so shall your offspring be it's, a, it's like a repeat of the promise so shall your offspring be it's a huge promise well time passes and there's still no baby born to Sarah. And she's now in her late 70s. And so Sarah begins to wonder about all of this and a plan begins to formulate in her mind to help move things along. She has a younger Egyptian slave woman named Hagar. And if Abram fathered a child through Hagar, well, that child would legally be their heir. Now, it sounds like a strange thing for us to do because we don't have slaves and if we did, we wouldn't be expecting to have children through those slaves. But this was an acceptable thing to do in the time. If, if a married couple were not able to produce an heir of their own, they could rightfully use a slave to produce an heir for them and that would be legally, that child would be legally um, their heir. So Sarah tells Abram of her plan. He agrees to go ahead with it. The Egyptian maidservant conceives 
And at 86 years of age, Abram's first child is born. Ishmael is born to Hagar, the slave woman. Now, this is not what God had intended for this family. God had not forgotten his promise to them. And he was more than able to keep it. And when the time was right, he would keep it. And he would not need any ingenious human plan to help him along the way. Sure enough, when Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah gave birth to a child, the child of the promise, Isaac. Now to us, this is completely unbelievable. Can you imagine a woman in her 90s bearing a child? A man over 100 running around chasing after a toddler. It's completely unbelievable. And so it was to them. Sarah laughed at the prospect of it. And when the child was born, they called him Isaac, which means he laughs. And Sarah proclaims, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And that's exactly what they've been doing down through the ages, even today. It is laughable to us that someone in their 90s could bear a child. Now at this point, I think a little note is in order because Sarah gets a good rap throughout this whole story and Hagar doesn't. Yet Hagar had no say in the way that she was used through all of this. And so we have to remember the words of the apostle in this story. He says, these things may be taken allegorically. So if we're looking for the moral um, lesson to be learned out of this story, then we look in Genesis and we see what happened when this plan was hatched and what the outworkings of that was for the conflict within the family and later on through the generations. But these things may be taken allegorically, says Paul. So he's using them to illustrate something else and we shouldn't try and use them to learn necessarily moral lessons about what happened in this story. So with the birth of Isaac, Abraham now has two sons born to two women. Ishmael to the slave woman, Isaac to the free woman. And all was not happy families in their household as so often happens when we try and take matters into our own hands. Instead of trusting in God, things don't work out quite as God would have planned. There was trouble between the two women almost from the moment that Hagar conceived and gave birth to Ishmael. There was animosity, there was jealousies between the two women and this all came to a head when Isaac, the second child, was weaned. Abraham decided to hold a big celebration, a feast, and at that celebration Sarah witnessed Ishmael mocking her son Isaac. Now Ishmael at this stage was about 14 years of age. Isaac was much, much younger. And so Sarah's not impressed with this and she wants him and his mother gone. 
get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son. Now, imagine the whole situation causes Abraham a lot of distress. These are both his sons, and he loves both of them. But God tells him that he should listen to Sarah, that Ishmael will be looked after. He too will become a nation, but that he should take Sarah's advice and get rid of the slave woman and her son. And so they're sent out into the desert to live. Now, these are the historical facts of the story. And it might have been ancient history even back then when the Apostle Paul was was writing to the churches in Galatia. But its importance can't be underestimated because these people traced their lineage, their identity as a nation is found in this story because they traced their lineage back through Isaac uh, to Abraham as the father of the nation. So what does Paul do here? We move, moving now to look at the, the form of the argument. He takes a piece of their history, which was also his history, because he was one of them, and he doesn't dispute the facts of their history, but he treats them in a different way. He takes something historical and he reinterprets it in an allegorical way. Now, it's something that not a lot of us are really comfortable with, to take historical fact and to use it to teach something else. But this was not uncommon in the day. This was something that the rabbis were expert at. In fact, so familiar was it that they had a name for it. It was called Midrash, which means something like textual interpretation. And Hebrew scholar Wilder Gaffney describes it as a method to discern values in texts, words and letters as potential revelatory spaces. So to learn something from the text. And there were a number of different techniques that could be used and were used by the rabbis and one of those was allegory, to interpret something allegorically. Now remember that before, before Paul had that life-changing interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was a Pharisee. And he's described as being a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was very zealous. And so he would have spent his days studying the scriptures and the Midrashim, which went along with them, that the rabbis had produced to interpret the scriptures. So all of this was kind of second nature to him. So we've got the basic elements of the story and we know what form of argument Paul's using here. So where does he take us with this? What's the destination? Well, he begins by laying out a challenge for these Judaizers and those who were in Galatia who might want to sympathise with them. He says, tell me, you that desire to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? Now, he's using the word law here in two different ways. You who desire to be under the law, the laws of Moses, You're very careful to point them out and to tell other people that they should do them. Don't you understand or don't you listen to the law, the whole law, the scripture that they had, the Torah? Don't you listen to it? And of course, 
their answer to that would have been, yes, we do. We love the law. We love the Torah. We teach it to our children. We memorise it. And so he goes on to recount to them the stories of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar and the two boys. For it is written, he says, that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. And there'd be no objections there from the Judaizers or from anyone who might sympathise with them. Yes, that was a statement of historical fact as they understood it. And now having drawn them into the argument, getting them to agree with the initial part of it, things start to take a turn from here. So as we work our way through, I want, to, I want you to imagine yourself as one of these Judaizers or as someone in Galatia who might be sympathetic to what they were trying to argue. Abraham has two sons. Yes, we agree with that. Abraham had two sons, of course he did. One by the slave woman, born in the ordinary way. Correct, yes. And the other by the free woman, born as a result of the promise. Correct again. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, says Paul. And as a Judaizer or one of their sympathisers, at this point you might be thinking, well, okay, maybe they can be interpreted allegorically. Sometimes the rabbis do that. All right, we'll hear you out on this part of the argument. These two women are two covenants. Okay, yes, that makes sense. These are two important figures in our history and the covenants were an important part of who we are as well. Yeah, okay, maybe the two women can represent two covenants. Go on, Paul. One of them is from Mount Sinai. Of course, yes, of course she is. If they're going to represent covenants, then one of them has to be from Mount Sinai. That makes perfect sense. Go on, continue. One is from Mount Sinai and she is bearing children for slavery. Wait a minute, hang on. The one from Mount Sinai is bearing children for slavery. What? And she is Hagar. Absolutely not. Can't be. You need to try and understand their outrage at this point. Up until now, they had nothing to object to in any of his argument. But the prospect of their beloved Mount Sinai being associated with slavery and with a slave woman, Hagar, that's going to get them hot under the collar. But Paul's got more because not only is Hagar associated with Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai is associated with slavery, she also corresponds to the present day Jerusalem, which they were which they loved and they were so proud of. That was where their temple was. There were many people there following the laws, doing their best to keep 
the laws and to live in what they consider to be a holy and righteous way. And now they're being told that the people there are being associated with a slave woman and slavery. They're not going to be happy at all at this point. In fact, I think you can probably safely imagine steam coming out of their ears at this point. You see, by choosing Hagar to produce a son for himself, Abraham had chosen to supplement God's promise with his own effort, with human ingenuity. He was choosing to work for his son instead of trusting God for that son. So Hagar and her son Ishmael represent the slavery that those in Jerusalem who were continuing to try and live up to the standard of the law, they represent those people. Those people who did not act like faith alone was enough to secure their salvation. Sarah, on the other hand, stands for a different kind of Jerusalem. Sarah was a free woman. Her son was born supernaturally of the promise of God. She represents all who have ceased striving to keep the law and who instead accept that the salvation that they have is a wonderful gift of God, given supernaturally, just as was a baby to a 90-year-old woman. You know, if Sarah had been 30 or 35, we'd kind of all be wondering, was it really that big a deal that she had this promised child? But she's not. She's 90. So this is a supernatural thing that only God could do. That Jerusalem is free and she is our mother. In the words of Timothy Keller, she is our mother city, the place where we truly belong, the place where we have all the rights of citizenship, the place where we are truly home. And where is that place? It is above in heaven. The new Jerusalem is a heavenly Jerusalem. It is the kingdom of God. Revelation 21 describes her as the bride, the wife of the lamb. And so she is also in this present day the church and she is free. Paul now goes on to quote scripture from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 54.1. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labour. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now the prophet used this scripture in relation to Israel in exile. They were barren in exile and they longed for the day when their families would grow and their numbers would flourish when they could return um, to their land. It was a prophecy about the restoration of Israel in the short term, but it also looked forward towards a time when that prophecy would be fulfilled in the great multitude of the Gentiles who would, as it were, take Israel to be their mother city, their spiritual mother, after the coming of the Messiah. And Paul sees this fulfilled 
in the growth of the new covenant church. The barren woman Sarah eventually gave birth to the child that God promised and those spiritual descendants would continue against all odds to grow the church all over the world. So addressing the Galatian believers as children of the promise, Paul goes on to describe the persecution that they would receive at the hands of the son born in the ordinary way, just as Ishmael persecuted and mocked Isaac, so too will the children, spiritual children of the promise be mocked by those who continue to earn their salvation some other way. John Stott describes it like this. The greatest enemies of the evangelical faith today, he says, are not unbelievers who, when they hear the gospel, often embrace it, but the church, the establishment, the hierarchy, Isaac, is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. Now, in my opinion, those enemies of the evangelical faith that he speaks about are highly religious people who have simply forgotten how to laugh like Sarah did when God's promise was fulfilled in her. Sarah laughed for joy and she laughed because she could appreciate how wonderfully, miraculously, extravagantly, absolutely absurd it was that a woman in her 90s would give birth to a child. And that, in the same way, applies to how wonderfully, miraculously, absolutely absurd it is that God should gift us the gift of salvation. We are to accept it, accept it in ourselves and accept it in others as the gift of God that it is. Laugh like Sarah did. Understand that there is nothing that you or anyone else could have done or could ever do to, to deserve it and enjoy it and don't look back. Now, there's a video circulating online at the moment. Some of you may have seen it. It's a beautiful video. If you go home and Google it, I'm sure you'll find it. Made me cry first time I saw it. It's a video of a chimpanzee who spent 28 years in a laboratory, in cages and in crates being subject to whatever they subject chimpanzees to in the name of science. And after 28 years, this chimpanzee is released into a rehabilitation centre, um, sort of a semi-wild environment with a whole lot of other chimps that are residing there already who've come from similar situations. And the video shows the chimp in coming out of the caged area there and it jumps into the arms of another waiting chimp below and the two of them embrace and there's lots of excited squawking chimp noises as they embrace and hold each other and then comes that moment when they release from their embrace and the newly released chimp looks around and she sees something that she has never seen before. She sees the sky and she just has this look of wow on her face as she realises that she has been set free and there's this whole different world to discover.
And then the video progresses and you see the, the lead chimp, the male, coming up to her and he's sort of hurrying her along, shuffling her away from the caged area out into the open, the trees and the, the fields. And eventually she, she's coaxed out there and then they're off and she does not look back. And to me, that is kind of like an image of how the church should be. Those chimps had no requirements of this new chimp. They didn't require her to do anything at all. They just accepted her for who she was. She'd been given the gift of freedom and she took it and she left and she did not look back. Like Isaac and the believers in Galatia, we too are children of the promise. We are no longer slaves to sin, we are free. We are free because those of us who've put our faith in Christ are children of the free woman by spiritual descent. And it would make no sense to go back in the other direction to forego our freedom and choose a life of something else. Well, I imagine Paul at this point a bit like a boxer. He's gone his rounds, he's put in a few jabs, you know, Hagar, she's Mount Sinai, she's bearing children for slavery, and now he's coming back with his final blow, and that final blow is cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Here is a scripture that they would have used probably as their proof scripture um, of God's rejection of the Gentiles. And here he's taking it and he's turning it around and he's applying it to them, to those who want to keep people in slavery observing the laws. Cast them out, get rid of them, says Paul dispose of their teachings and embrace the freedom that you have because we are not children of the slave woman but of the free. So this morning we have had two mothers, two sons, two covenants, two cities and ultimately a choice between two ways for us to live kind of reminds me of what they used to say on Sesame Street. You know, this morning's episode has been brought to you by the number two. And everything throughout the episode has to be in two. So I feel like I need to finish on a two. So I've got two questions. Two questions. Firstly, who is your mother? Are you spiritually descended from the free woman? Or are you choosing put requirements on yourself or others that would have you be a descendant of the slave woman? And which city are you a citizen of? They're essentially one and the same question, but I needed a two because it's two today. <laughs> which city? The earthly Jerusalem with all of its rituals and regulations and adhering to requirements of the law to be good enough, faith by works, or are you willing to accept that free gift 
for the wonderful supernatural thing that it is. I'll leave it with you today. Amen.